Amen. Thank you, Patty. Jesus paid it all. Amen. Thank you, worship team. I think I'm probably the most elated to have Noah back with us from the land far away in the east in Japan. Welcome back, Noah. It's good to see everybody here this morning. And as is today is a communion Sunday, we're going we're gonna to go back from the book of Revelation, the 66th book of the Bible. We're going to flip back to the 21st book of the Bible, the book of Ecclesiastes. And you will know by now that Solomon has been doing a life experiment. And that is he is trying everything within his means to discover meaning in this universe. Meaning under the sun. And that's an important phraseology in this book because what he means by searching for meaning under the sun is that there's nothing above the sun, there's nothing transcendent, there's nothing divine, there's nothing out there that can help us here on earth understand what life is all about. We're on our own, basically. And so he is trying to find uh, meaning within this created uh, order here. And he is diligently pursuing all things. He has a hunger in his heart, he has a hunger in his soul to find purpose and meaning And he hasn't been able to find it in all of his pursuits. So the entire book chronicles this pursuit of trying to find this uh, fullness, this satisfaction in creation. It reminded me a little bit as I was reviewing this morning, because he tries everything. Sometimes I have a taste for something. Something very very, uh, particular. And so I'll go in the refrigerator, or I'll go in the pantry, and I'm trying this, and I'm trying that. And just nothing quite satisfies that craving. And so I'll just be piling it in and then I'll just stop and say, what are you doing? You don't even like what you're eating. Just stop here. But I'm just, I'm looking for that something specific. So I I experiment with other things to try to fill it. And Solomon is in that pursuit as well. So one of the things that he first tries is self-indulgence. And in a sense, if you're in his predicament and you're trying to find purpose and meaning and joy in this life, it makes sense on those terms to self-indulge because in small doses, self-indulgence is fun for us, it's enjoyable for us, and so the reason goes, if I could just heap it upon myself and get more of this thing that I am thoroughly enjoying... It just makes sense that that will bring me the satisfaction, the happiness, and the joy that I'm seeking in life. So he tries a life of self-indulgence. And you will recall, we're going to be in chapter 2 this morning of Ecclesiastes. We're going to look at the second half of it. But you will recall that his pursuits of this joy and this meaning in life kind of follows uh, familiar stages of seasons in life that mankind experiences. So it's not just Solomon that's doing this, that many others do this as well. He followed this common path. So what's the first thing you try when you're starving for meaning, purpose, joy? He tried the party life, uh, the king's version of the party life. He threw serious parties, and these were not clean parties. These were not wholesome Christian parties These were parties where you party out and you're just trying to 
to soak up the meaning of life, find and experience all the joys you possibly can. Uh, they laughed till their bellies hurt. They partied. They were intoxicated. They danced. He had his own concerts, everything that you can imagine. But after a while, that kind of lifestyle just lost its luster. And so he found himself once again in pursuit of fulfillment and meaning. So as it often happens, he moved on to another phase and he got into building projects. So the idea is, okay, I'm kind of squandering my life. Enough of being irresponsible. It's time for me to make my impact in this earth and try to find satisfaction by uh, rather than taking society for granted, contributing something, bringing something to the table. And so he built great projects. Um, it took him 14 years to build his house, seven years to build the temple. He used the finest materials, craftsmanship, engineering, and they were quite a spectacle. He continued on. He planted forests. He planted gardens. He made ponds. He had pools. Uh, they were like modern-day beautiful parks and scenery for all the people to come and enjoy. And so he began to get satisfaction out of all the hard work and the service and serving others. He served and worked long and hard, accomplished all of that, and then he got to a point once again where that was not fulfilling his soul. It's as if his soul or his heart has a hole in it. Everything he's trying to do works for a little while, but then he finds himself on empty again. So then he goes into what we would consider a life of ease, maybe the lifestyles of rich and famous, and that is, I'm not going to work anymore. I'm just going to enjoy the fruits of my labor. I'm a wealthy man. I'm going to hire everything out and enjoy it, and I'm just going to do what I want to do. If I find pleasure in traveling, if I find pleasure in sitting and doing nothing, uh, whatever, that's what I'm going to do. So he hires everything out. He has lots of uh, servants. And the idea is that it's this pursuit that Solomon has and people have, and we want to find the jackpot. We want, there's got to be something out there where I can find the jackpot that will fill my heart and soul so that I'm an enjoyable person on the inside and the outside. So all of these phases that he went through and all these pursuits, they make sense to a degree and they sound very, very promising. But Solomon's message in this book, for the most part, at least so far, would be this. If that's you, prepare to be unsatisfied. If that's you, if this is what you're doing, prepare to be let down. So I'm going to read verse 12 just to kind of bring us right up to speed and then we'll launch in. In verse 12 of chapter 2, he says, So I turn to consider wisdom and madness and folly. For what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. So what he's saying there uh, to the world, to anybody that cares to read his works, is I have already been there, I've done that, I've tried it. There is nothing left to do. Because when I sought to find this meaning, when I self-indulged myself, when I embarked on these building projects, I did it to the maximum degree. 
to the highest level that it can be accomplished. So if you're, if you're tempted to think, well, maybe you didn't take it far enough in this area, or you didn't do enough of that, or you didn't spend enough money, or you didn't exhaust yourself. He says, no, I've done it all. I have done it all, and you will never top it. You'll only just repeat what I've already tried, which means that if you try it again, and you continue to try to find intrinsic meaning in this material world, then you're a fool because you are ignoring the facts and the reality of life. You're choosing to live in your own ignorance and pursue desires, fulfillment of desires that will just constantly let you down. So welcome to life under the sun. This is what we have without anything over the sun in our closed world, without the transcendent, without the metaphysical, this is what we have. And you think to yourself, well, that's pretty dismal. How could it get any worse? We're about to find out here. Because the fact of the matter is, when you're stuck in that mode of thinking, no matter how hard you think, it only leads you farther down the tunnel of despair. When we close ourselves in, when we limit ourselves to meaning, to knowledge, to understanding within just our own minds and what we can see and observe, and we don't include the rest of the universe, the Bible speaks in the narrative, then we're just left in a state of despair. And we can think one despairing thought after another, and that leads to another despairing thought. So that is the cycle that Solomon is in. I'm going to read these um, verses for the sake of time. I'm only going to read the verses uh, for the, for the uh, points, the three points that I want to draw out of this passage rather than reading it all and then rereading it. So what can we learn from this? Three things. First, Solomon will teach us don't walk in darkness. Verses 13 and 14 in chapter 2 of Ecclesiastes. Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I perceive that the same event happens to all of them. So in essence, he's, he's learning things. He hasn't found meaning, but he's, exert, he's examining life. And he's certainly learning valuable things. And he says, though we're all going to wind up in the same place here in verse 14, I've learned that if you walk in wisdom, uh, it actually works. Life goes better for you as opposed to walking in folly. So he would say, uh, while we're here, at least we should be wise. We should open our eyes to what's happening in life. We should see that there are consequences to our actions and there are consequences to our thoughts. And sometimes we just smack ourselves on our knuckles and other things are, we find great pleasure and joy in. And so he's encouraging his readers to open your eyes. You have eyes, use them. You have a brain, use them. Use your common sense, your ability to observe and draw right conclusions. And he would call that walking in the light. And he would say, don't draw conclusions and, and walk in pain and suffer from your decisions and just continue on with the belief that sooner or later it's going to deliver. Just stop and see where your life is taking you, where your beliefs and your values. Is it producing any kind of joy? 
any kind of delight, any kind of satisfaction, or is it promising that, but in real life it's failing you miserably, and in real life it's only creating a destructive life. So if we're not careful, we can doom ourselves in that sense. We want to put ourselves under the light of common sense. Now this is great advice, especially to youth. Because every youth culture promises you something. It's, it's, it's just rehashed. It turns out to be rehashed promises. But every youth has like its own excitement and its own promise that we're going we're gonna to really get to the top of life if we just follow that. It offers its own philosophy. And it promises to lead you to the light, but it's really leading you into darkness. So my uh, youth culture was... The, in my little world, my little sphere, was the party life was, where it, was what it was all about. You know, you went to school because you had to. You, know, you worked here and you did your chores and stuff because you had to. But the ultimate was the party life, the free life. That's what delivered. And so if we applied Solomon's wisdom to that kind of living, he would say, well, wait a minute, just stop. That's what you think, and there's fun in it. But where is it really getting you? And if you stop and you open your eyes and you use your brain, you will see that it's actually destructive. You will see that you need more and more of it because it doesn't deliver. You will see that it's not making lives, it's ruining lives. And we would have to agree with the facts. I'd have to agree with those facts. But if we're not careful, we get swept into the cultural philosophy of the moment and we just go for it as if, the, the decision's already been made. No, this is the way we should live. This is what we should do with our lives. This is the ultimate life. Uh, in my lifetime, it seems, <clears throat> excuse me, that each philosophy just gets more and more dangerous for our youth. It's more and more self-destructive. I mean, we live in a world today where our youth are voluntarily mutilating their bodies. They're voluntarily following this promise that you will be more accepted, you will uh, find your real self, and that yearning in your heart, here's how you feel it, here's how you answer it. So we have uh, kids taking hormone replacement therapy, undergoing all kinds of um, gender surgeries, removing parts that are supposed to be there, and adding parts that aren't supposed to be there. Uh, We have youth, of all people, getting implants, having cosmetic surgeries, altering their bodies in ways that you can't go back. And it's, it's, uh, we used to say, you know, you give an arm and a leg to get that. Well, now people are giving arms and legs, so to speak, to get the thing that they want. And it's very sad to watch this because it won't deliver according to the truth or the biblical narrative of the body, of the Bible. That's not what's going to fill our hearts. That's not how you get accepted in life. I remember as a kid, you know, we just follow along. And my parents, and I'm sure you've, many of you have heard this saying, but, well, if their friends told you to jump off a cliff, would you do it? And the answer is, of course not, Dad. I wouldn't do that. Well, you did the other foolish stuff. I know, but I wouldn't jump off a cliff. But now we have, metaphorically, kids jumping off cl- cliffs because other kids are doing it. That's how bad it is. So Solomon's wisdom would be, just stop, settle down. Open your eyes, open your minds, look, observe, 
Are you, are, is this really working? Does it line up with life? Or are you just believing false promises? You know, the media does a great job at lifting up things that are false and making it look perfectly true and normal. And a lot of people, it's hard not to fall for this. But I appreciate this wisdom. Are your beliefs, your values, your pursuits taking you where you really want to go? Are they ministering and soothing your soul? It's hard to argue with that. So wisdom, walk in the light. However, second, wisdom doesn't exempt us from our broken and cursed world. So we can make wise decisions, but we still have to live in this cursed world because there is a God and because we're accountable to Him and because we have disobeyed Him, there are those consequences that we have to live out whether we believe in it or not or whether we like it or not. So verses 15 and 16. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Now, reason with him before I read, read farther. Look how he's going from one thought level to the next. If this is true, then this must be true. He's observing. He's using his brain. So what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity. For of the wise, as of the fool, there's no enduring remembrance. Seeing that in the days to come, all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. He observes his life. And he realizes that, you know... There are people that are working really hard. They're trying to understand things, grasp things, even live responsible lives, walk in the light. And then there are those that are just idiots. They don't care about truth. They don't care about themselves. They don't care about anything. They don't do anything right. And guess what? I have noticed something constant. And that is we all go to the same place. We all die. So no matter how much I have ascended in this life or how much somebody has descended to the bottom of the barrel in their kind of living, we all share the same ground, the same earth, the same dust. So whether you live in wisdom or whether you live in complete folly, if you live in wisdom, you may live a more uh, enjoyable life. You may live a longer life. Uh, If you live in folly... You may speedily meet your end. But you're going to meet your end no matter what kind of life you live is his observation. And this really bothers him because he put a lot of time and effort into learning things. He cared about life. I mean, he prayed for wisdom and he got it. And so he studied, he didn't just self-indulge, he studied meaningful things. He studied insects and how they operate. And he studied animals and he studied people and he studied things that were very helpful to society. He brought a lot of wisdom to the temple, to the, to the table. He, he built great structures and he's beginning to realize, wait a minute. What did this actually achieve for me? I didn't get any kind of special treatment for walking in wisdom. I'm still going to die. I still face the same 
And of all the people I probably despised and the fullest decisions that they were making. So it didn't matter that he was a king. It didn't matter that he was a rich king. It didn't matter that he was a wise king. He's going to be buried with those that live the unexamined life. He will not escape death. And this troubles him. And it's this kind of thinking that drives us to seek after the fountain of youth. We all have, every age has its promise of the fountain of youth. We want to escape death when we don't have a biblical worldview. We don't understand death properly. We don't understand what it means. So obviously the thing to do would be to try to escape it, to try to cheat it, to try to beat it. So we have our fountain of youth. I would say, just in my opinion, that our uh, culture's fountain of youth at this moment is uh, the, the biohacking trend. The extreme form of biohacking. Biohacking in and of itself is basically you become your own biologist and you, you learn about, don't rely on others so much, other professionals. You do your own research, you learn your own body, you find out what helps it. Instead, just listen to everybody else. Just No, you, you experiment. You take supplements. You do exercise, whatever it is. And you want to live a healthier life. You want to feel better. And that's a wonderful thing. And I applaud that. But it can be taken to an extreme. And that is where there are those out there who see death as something that uh, is not necessary. And that if we can just elevate ourselves to a certain levels of health, feed ourselves certain things and do certain things that we can actually cheat death. I think that's where biohacking is taken to the extreme of seeing it as an answer to cheat death or the fountain of youth. We do want to take care of ourselves. We do want to steward our bodies. They're gifts from God. They matter. We can make wise decisions or foolish decisions. I have discovered that there are consequences, negative consequences to being a couch potato. There are negative consequences to eating in certain ways. And there are positive rewards to doing the opposite. But there are those now that are writing books that say age is not a given. That age can be overcome. We don't have to age. And they're doing very, very weird things to prevent it. But I just want to say from a biblical, uh, well, it, well, actually, now we read about not only biohacking, but transhumanism, where we say, well, wait a minute, I'm going to get the computer chips and bionics to help myself in these weaknesses and these so I can live forever and have a more enjoyable life. Rely on the old computer chip. Uh, we have the threat of AI these days. What's going to happen with that? as happens so much with prideful humanity, is we create these things that we don't even know how to manage and they get ahead of us. That we're keeping our eye on that as well. But I just want to say that there, there are not enough computer chips. There aren't enough spinach chips. There are not, uh, there's not enough red light therapy or DNA injections in this world to keep us alive forever, period. Because the Bible teaches us that we do live in a sin, a, a cursed world, 
we're under the curse of death because of our sin against a holy God. And we will not cheat it. There's nothing in this material universe that will allow us to achieve or attain that level of eternity. Now, I am really glad to hear about new cures and new technologies and improvements. I am all for that. But we are only alive because of the plan of God and the grace of God. We rely upon Him for our very breath. And so we're just deceiving ourselves to think that these material things or our own brains are going to outsmart the wrath and the curse of God. And therefore, death should not devastate us. Death should not take us by surprise. As a matter of fact, if we think about it properly, that we all will meet our end one way or another, it actually can serve us well. It enables us to enjoy life as it's lived more fully. And we can make decisions with the knowledge that life is limited and our days are numbered. We can make wise decisions and therefore enjoy things. America's, um, he was hailed as America's greatest theologian, Jonathan Edwards. He came up with 70 resolutions that he used as principles to guide his life. Let me just share a few of them with you that pertain to the concept of my days are numbered, death is looming, therefore how do I live, how do I glorify God? One, resolved, I will do whatever I think will be most to God's glory and my own good, profit, and pleasure for as long as I live. His number seven was, resolved, never to do anything which I would be afraid to do if it were the last hour of my life. Number nine, resolved to think much on all occasions about my own dying and of the common things which are involved with and surround death. And then lastly, number 17 of the 70 on his list, resolved, I will live in such a way as I will wish I had done when I come to die. So you see how it's altered His thinking, he has a biblical worldview. He understands how life works. He's not trying to cheat it. He's embracing it for what it is. He's leaning towards God. It's enabling him to savor the seconds, to savor the relationships in his life that he does have. He is grateful for all the things that he does have instead of seeking after all the things that he doesn't have that cannot be found or were not meant to be found in this life. So... In this sense, at least, with life how it is, mortality can enable us, if we treat it right, to live better lives. Lead us to be more grateful. It can, it can enhance our relationships if we will allow it, if we realize my spouse won't be here forever. How's that going to change you? And maybe we'll, we'll embrace one another more. Maybe we'll give freer kisses. How will it calls us to look at our children. When we know that all this is temporary, it changes things. Maybe it causes us to treasure our children, to treasure our family relationships, to treasure our community relationships more, to know how to look and to, to assess and to value the things that do bring the most joy to our hearts, the gifts of God. So keeping the end in sight helps us to appreciate Middle Earth. 
the poor Solomon. He's a smart guy and he's connecting one dot after another. It's leading him down this path of despair. Now we're in verses 17 to 21. Here's his, he continues, I hated life. So I hated life because what is done under the sun was grievous to me. For all is vanity and a striving after the wind. I hated all of my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. Yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun. Because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by somebody Someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. So, you know, first he's, he's looking at life and the way he's living it. And he hates it right now. He hates it because of the rule of diminishing return. It's like I pursue something. It takes me up uh, to a level of joy. And then it peaks. And then it falls back down on the ground. And then I have to start something else. But I always find that I'm in the same starting spot. No matter what direction I go, no matter how hard I seek after something, I wind up in the same circle of vanity and meaninglessness. He's done it all there. There's nothing else to try. How can he not despair when he realizes that? And as if that wasn't despairing enough, he begins to think deeply and he's like, wait a minute. That means... That everything that I have accomplished, anything that I did bring to the table, anything that I did build, when I die, it's no longer under my control. It's left into the hands of others. Which means all that work could very well be destroyed. And then I have nothing to show for it even after my death. So this leads us to our last point. After you die or posthumous continuance of your achievements is not guaranteed. The things that we accomplish here, when we leave, we are not in control of any of them. So I'm just going to guess that he took a look at his sons and he thought about the future and he said, we're in trouble. (laughs) We're in trouble. And sure enough, The son Rehoboam who did ascend to the throne was not as wise as his father. He made some foolish decisions. He displeased the people. Now I know there's a spiritual element to all this so don't leave that out. But from this human level he uh, ruled foolishly and the kingdom split. The kingdom was divided to north and south. All the peace, all the prosperity, all the order all the joy and the riches that Solomon brought to this kingdom and all his people, gone. Sure enough, it is um, dissipating there. So Solomon is seeing the writing on the wall. Man, all this work, it's going to be destroyed and I can't do a thing about it when I'm gone. So, This leads him to really think through some things. Maybe some questions that we might think that uh, would impact impact us. Eternal questions. 
Verse 22 and 23 verses. What is a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? What has a man? For all his days are full of sorrow and his work is a vexation. Even in the night his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. So he's laying in his bed at night. He sees a writing on the wall. He's thinking about, man, this is going to go and that's going to go and all that work. And what did I really, I mean, I sweat, I bled, uh, I I lost sleep, I served, and where's it going to get me? They're just going to ruin it. So I have to ask myself the question, was it even worth it? Did I accomplish anything at all? Now it's interesting to me that Solomon has the exact opposite uh, position or story or problem that Job did. By the way, this is a book of wisdom, and Job is a book of wisdom, so we read these things and we glean practical insights about life. Well, Job was a man who had everything. I mean, read it. He had everything. God had blessed him. But everything was taken away from him. And yet he still had joy because the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. He was not devastated. He was not in despair because he believed in the one who exists above the sun. Solomon, on the other hand, he had everything and he kept everything and he is not satisfied. He is left empty because he is trying to live his life Only under the sun. And so he's vexed with this terrible, terrible feeling that perhaps all I did means nothing and will come to nothing. And his heart is telling him, this just doesn't seem right. And then he has to ask the big question, so does it even matter? Does anything even matter with this kind of in-line reasoning. If that's where it all ends up. Why would I even want to put effort into anything? Why would I toil? Why would I care about anything? You see the line of reasoning under the sun where it logically brings us? Does it matter? There's nothing better for a person, verse 24, than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil This also I saw is from the hand of God, for apart from him who can eat or who can have enjoyment. That's how he answers his question. Does anything really matter? And it's so important, it's so helpful. Because what he's learning is that I sought creation, I sought fulfillment in creation and man. I went to the extent, to the ends of the earth, so to speak, And tried everything and it's not there. What you're looking for to fill the hole in your heart, that joy, the thing that's missing, you can't find it in this universe. You can't find it in the nature of man. You can't look deep within yourself and find it there, hidden somewhere. It doesn't exist. In order for things to matter, there has to be something over the sun. But see... His belief system and others won't allow him to entertain that idea. He's stuck in this this way of thinking with just earthly things. 
So what we do is we seek everlasting things through temporal things. That's what we're left with. And we can do that even as Christians when we lose sight of the biblical worldview. That is when we try to seek to get things that are of eternal significance out of things that are just intended and designed to be temporal. So we used to shop for things because we actually needed them. Now we shop for things to get a certain feeling of satisfaction, a certain level of joy. It's materialism. So we're looking for, at, for material things to fill the hole in our hearts. We're broken that way. The lasting enjoyment's not found in creation. The lasting enjoyment is found only in the Creator, the one that made all of these beautiful things, the one that made us to be able to think and problem solve, the, may, the one that put within us desires to achieve, the desires to make an impact, desires to build structures, desires to build relationships that will last. Creation was not designed to fill us and bless us in that way. Only He who exists over the Son, only God can do that. And so no matter how far we go or how much money we spend or how much we neglect ourselves and just say, I don't care, that's not the answer either. Only Christ or God through Christ is the answer. And how interesting it is that in our culture we are taught the exact opposite. We are we are taught, we are cultured, we're groomed to believe that the joy, the only joy that you can get out of life is in things. And that all of these things and people, created things and people, are actually exist to make you happy. And when they're not making you happy, something is wrong with them. They're broken, and so you need to try to fix it. And where this gets troublesome is when we start looking at each other as you're broken, you're not making me happy like you're supposed to, and therefore it's causing conflict and resentment and even anger in our relationship. Because you're supposed to, you exist to, fulfill me and make me happy, and you are failing in that. So i got to roll up my sleeves and fix you so that I can be happy again. And that's what we're led to believe. And you can see why it leads to resentment in our lives. Man falls in love. He, he marries a fine woman and they have a fine house to live in. He's got a decent job. And they begin to have children. And yet something is still missing. And so he begins to think about life in terms of what's not making me happy. That's what's missing. What's not making me happy? And so he begins to think. It doesn't take him long to realize some things. You know, I'd be happy. I'd be a much happier man if my wife would just uh, practice making babies a little more than we I'm used to. I'd be a much happier man if I would get more recognition at work. All I do over there, and nobody says a word about it. I'd be much happier if I didn't just have this house, but a house with a garage and a shop so I could fulfill all my creative desires out there and show the world what I can do. I would be much 
happier if these things would fall into place. See, people are failing him. Things are failing him. He's looking to them to fill the void. And the sad thing is that we're told this, these faulty ways of thinking and living and achieving the desires of her heart or attaining these things so often that we believe the lies. And what we want to do is fix everybody. And we neglect the obvious conclusion that maybe the problem is that something's wrong with my heart and that I'm not looking at life right and I'm not looking at people right and I'm not looking at things and all of my gifts properly. That I'm trying to get the eternal out of the temporal. And it causes problems and it causes anxiety and it's because we are broken. The fullness of joy and the satisfaction. This very book, Ecclesiastes, says that God has put eternity in man's heart. We're stuck with that. We're stuck with that longing and we're going to crave it until we find it whether we look in the right place or not. But the fullness of joy and satisfaction only comes from God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. When we find Him and believe in Him, then the pieces of the puzzle begin to fit together. Then we understand why we were made and why other people were made. Then we understand the proper relationships that we're supposed to have with creation and life. And then the joy comes. We cannot even enjoy creation as it's intended to be enjoyed unless we believe in the Creator. Because we will misunderstand it and we will think it's broken. When we become believers, then we really appreciate the temporal things and the material things because we understand. Apart, verse 25, from him who can eat or who can have, for apart from him who can eat or who can have enjoyment. For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. To the one who pleases God. So that's the answer. That's the answer. The craving that will fulfill all other cravings is to live for and worship God. To know our Creator in an intimate way. To understand why He created us. And we will find that He didn't create us for our sake. He created us for His sake. To love and to worship Him. So you see how the despair, no matter how far down we get in our thinking and our faulty pursuits and our failures in life, we can immediately be lifted up. And we can immediately have a hope that lasts forever. When we believe in Jesus Christ, that's how we please God. We say, yes, you are real. I realize the error of my ways. I want to do it different. I want the reward and fruit of life. I want to have a marriage that honors you and that brings joy. And I want to parent my kids in this way. I want to go work, go to work and love it. And I can only get that through Jesus Christ. And He deserves our worship. And we get that by placing our faith in the Savior whom God sent for us to save us from our despair. So we have something to think about as we come to now to our time of worship and prepare ourselves for Holy Communion. May God bless the preaching of His Word.